This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Today on Inside Politics, we shall respond. A region already reeling from war is waiting for President Biden's next move as he promises to retaliate against those responsible for a drone attack that killed three U.S. soldiers in Jordan. Plus, tanking the deal. Donald Trump is pushing Republicans to abandon a bipartisan immigration bill they've been working on for months. He hasn't seen the plan. His goal is simply to deny President Biden an election year win. And man up. That's Nikki Haley's message to the all but certain Republican nominee. She's trying to taunt Trump into debating her while planning more than a dozen fundraisers to bring campaign cash in for a needed prolonged fight. I'm Dana Bash. Let's go behind the headlines and inside politics. We start with the major escalation in the Middle East today. President Biden is weighing options for how to respond to this weekend's deadly drone attack on a small U.S. outpost in Jordan. The White House blames Iranian-backed militant groups. The regime in Tehran denies any involvement. President Biden is vowing to retaliate, but to do so in a way that avoids an even wider regional conflict. We'll respond and we'll respond, um, you know, in a very... uh uh, consequential way. But we don't seek a war with, with Iran. We're not looking uh, for a wider conflict in the Middle East. In fact, every action the president has taken has been designed to de-escalate, to try to bring the tensions down. Uh, and obviously this attack, very, very serious, uh, certainly escalatory on the behalf of, uh, of these militia groups. We, we have to take that seriously, and we will. CNN's Natasha Bertrand starts us off from the Pentagon. Natasha, what are you hearing? Dana, this is obviously something that the administration had been dreading, given that there had been over 150 Iran-backed attacks on U.S. and coalition forces in Iraq and Syria since October, with the goal, U.S. officials say, of killing American service members. And we are learning that three U.S. Army soldiers did uh, were killed in this drone attack. More than 30 were wounded, including eight who had to be medically evacuated because their injuries were so serious. Now, we are learning a little bit more this morning about just how this occurred, how this drone managed to make its way uh, into this base and hit near the living quarters of this facility. We are told that an American drone, which was returning from a mission, was approaching the base at around the same time that the enemy drone was approaching. The enemy drone followed the American drone onto the base and it delayed the U.S. response because there was some confusion over whether that enemy drone was in fact an enemy rather than an American drone. And so all of this is contributing to the picture U.S. officials now have of what happened here. But still, as you said, the U.S. doesn't know which which group was responsible exactly uh, for this attack. Now, President Biden is under increasing pressure to respond and respond forcefully. Even presidential candidate Nikki Haley is weighing in on this, saying that the U.S. needs to hit back hard. Here's what she said. The very first strike that hit, you punch and you punch back hard. What they should be doing is going after every ounce of production of those missiles, wherever those missiles are, you take that out. You just keep doing, you take out the training sites. You go and you But does that risk escalating a war? Does, does that mean striking Iran directly? It means striking the resources that are allowing them to hurt our troops. That's what you're doing. 
Now, it's worth noting that the Biden administration has done that before. They have attacked weapons manufacturing facilities in Iraq and Syria that they believe the Iran-backed groups are using to stage these attacks on U.S. forces. Uh, however, the question remains of whether the U.S. is going to take that step of striking inside Iran directly. It does not appear that that is the most likely option at this mm. point, but certainly the president is coming under increasing pressure to do something very strong. He sure is. Thank you so much, Natasha, for that reporting. Joining me here, CNN National Security Analyst Beth Sanner and Peter Bergen. Uh, nice to see you both. Peter, I want to start with something that you wrote on CNN.com today. You wrote, since the war in Gaza began, Biden's administration officials have been saying multiple versions of we got this and have been working hard to contain any wider conflict. The burgeoning regional conflict now involves 10 countries, Jordan, Iran, Israel and Syria, Iran's proxies in Iraq, Lebanon and Yemen, Pakistan and the U.S. and the U.K. and four major terrorist groups, Hamas, Hezbollah, the Houthis and ISIS. I mean, that lays out the scope, the breadth of the players that we're talking about here, very foreboding. Yeah, I mean, they've been saying for a long time, we don't want the regional conflict to widen. Now Bush has, uh, Biden has a terrible dilemma, which is uh, how do you respond without just making it a bigger conflict? Uh, and they, as, as Natasha said in her report, they've already responded. They've blown mm -hmm. up ammunition depots and stuff. They've killed leaders of these groups. So what do you do? Um, and you know, one potential avenue is you know, massive cyber, cyber attacks, perhaps, that are deniable. Uh, but you know, if you're not going to attack Iran, what are you going to do? Um, and so we'll see. But uh, you know, obviously, what they sought to avoid has happened. Uh, and you know, as you say, uh, 10 countries are now involved in different ways and four major terrorist groups. Beth, you were deputy DNI, director of national intelligence. Take me inside what this kind of meeting is like, or meetings yeah. are like right now inside the National Security right. Council. Well, there are multiple meetings, right? And in each of these meetings, what, you, what everyone in the room is considering is, what are the range of options? What's on the table? And what will be the reaction of the different parties to different options, both the immediate reaction and then this long-term idea of reestablishing deterrence. And I was around during the Soleimani strike mm -hmm. in January of 2020, um, briefing President Trump at that time. And, you know, the issue is that you have to understand that it's not about just one strike. It has to also be deterrence isn't about one act. Four months, three months after the Soleimani attack, two U.S. servicemen were killed and a mm -hmm. U.K. soldier in a strike inside of Iraq. So these things, you know, you have to do short term and you have to do long term. Well, let me uh, show you some of what the uh, more hawkish members of Congress are saying that uh, the president should do in the short term. Um, Pre Senator Wicker, strike directly against Iranian targets and its leadership. Senator Lindsey Graham, strike targets of significance inside Iran. Senator Cotton, devastating military retaliation against Iran's terrorist forces. Cornyn, target Tehran. So you have uh, those pretty, uh, again, hawkish Republicans, but powerful voices when it comes to foreign policy. Then let's just stick with the Republican uh, party for a second, because this is uh, quite interesting. Then you have those who are more in the sort of Donald Trump, America first wing of the GOP, which have a growing influence in the GOP. Nancy Mace, let's listen to what she said 
uh, this morning. This is all Joe Biden's fault. And it's ironic because the same people on the left, the same Democrats who said that Donald Trump would start World War III, are the exact same people on the left who are literally trying to start World War III. If Biden wow. is going to go after Iran and do strikes or cause a war, he better come to Congress and, and make his case and get our approval. Peter? Well, the Republican Party is divided. But, I mean, to pick up on what Beth just said, I mean, you couldn't do anything bigger than killing Soleimani. He's the leader of the Iranian uh, Revolutionary Guard, the leader of the Quds Force. He was the most important military leader in Iran. Mm -hmm. uh, the Trump administration, you know, killed him. Did that deter Iran? No. <laughs> so, I mean, so, like, you've got to look at the facts here a little bit and say, just saying we're going to have to take out their leadership. Well, it didn't deter them last time. So, uh, you know, what will deter them this time? I, you know, who knows? I mean, that's a subject of intense debate. Yeah. Uh, but they're not, they haven't been that well deterred, nor the Houthis, nor anybody else. Uh, and, we, you know, the other question is, you, as you go up the escalation ladder to try and get dominance, at what point does you, you escalate so far that it is World War III? Exactly. I mean, I think that going for Tehran, for example, is such an easy talking point from someone who's not actually going to be held responsible for that decision. You know, when you're sitting in these meetings and mm -hmm. you're thinking about and discussing the implications of these actions, you know, the person sitting behind that Oval Office desk is responsible, ultimately. And so I, I kind of consider this, you know, free-for-all in these pot shots aren't mm -hmm. serious. They're not serious. If you take that strike to Tehran now, what do you have left? You mentioned World War III, and that's sort of something that not a lot of people are saying out loud. You've covered uh, conflicts and terrorist groups. In fact, thank you for gifting me with these books. <laughs> um, it's a dollar off because I signed. Thank you. I know, with the signatures. <laughs> but in all seriousness, uh, put this in the sort of context of what we've seen in the Middle East over the past, I don't know, two decades, three decades more, and how your level of concern is on that meter. Yeah, I mean, I'm just picking up, when World War III was simply picking yeah. up what May said. Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, this is as big a deal as the U.S. invasion of Iraq in 2003, which had all sorts of unintended consequences. That's, by the way, that's a big statement. Well, I mean, we're at that point, right? I mean, if, if there were really 10 countries involved, either as, you know, carrying out attacks, being the subject of attacks, you know, this thing is not, it's like the frog that is slowly in that slowly boiling pot of water. Uh, at what point do you say, yeah, we really are in a regional conflict? I think we are. Final word. You agree? Well, we're not over in terms of the risk of escalation. Hezbollah today, 10 attacks inside northern Israel. That is the next point, and it's different than this. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. A bipartisan group of senators has a deal for one of the toughest border bills that we've seen in decades. But are Republicans in Congress going to side with Donald Trump and tank it? We're going to talk about that after a break. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support, your sleep number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. 
Temperature balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. Celebrities of all kinds are speaking publicly about their therapeutic trips, so to speak. It turns out there is a burgeoning industry ready to serve the new influx of people who find themselves turning away from traditional mental health therapy. The gap between what we know and what we don't about psychedelic therapy. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. Congressional Republicans have a choice to make this week. Make a deal with Democrats on a tough new law to protect the U.S. southern border or listen to President Trump and block it for reasons that appear to be nakedly political. CNN congressional correspondent Lauren Fox joins me now from Capitol Hill. What's your sense? What's the vibe there in the hallways of Congress? Well, right now, I think there's a huge question of not what is directly in this bill, but how Republicans are going to manage the politics of this situation. The reality is this bill includes many provisions that when Donald Trump was president, he hoped would be made into law, including things like raising the threshold for asylum seekers, increasing the speed at which those cases can be processed in immigration courts across the country, as well as giving the president, no matter who that person is, whether it's Joe Biden or President Trump in the future, giving that person more room to shut down the border if there's an emergency or if crossings increase at a level that is really high. And the question right now is whether or not Republicans are going to say yes to this deal. You heard yesterday from Chris Murphy. Here's what he said. We do have a bipartisan deal. We're finishing the text right now. And the question is whether Republicans are going to listen to Donald Trump, who wants to preserve chaos at the border because he thinks that it's a winning political issue for him, or whether we are going to pass legislation which would be the biggest bipartisan reform of our border and immigration laws in 40 years. And the threats that some Republicans are getting, Dana, they're not hypothetical. You know, you saw over the weekend James Lankford facing a censure from his state party in Oklahoma saying that they would no longer support him unless he agreed to stop negotiating on this deal. So the threats are real. The reality for lawmakers and the political threats that they may face, they're real. But it becomes a question now, as Senator Tom Tillis put it to me last week, where are Republicans and are they going to have the courage to vote yes on this deal? I mean, it is just mind blowing, Lauren, that James Lankford, who is uh, about as conservative as they come, uh, is being threatened by the party a Republican Party in his state because he is trying to work on doing something that will at least take a step towards uh, helping the border crisis. It's really mind-blowing. Thank you so much, Lauren, for that great reporting. Let's talk more about all of this with my panel here, CNN's Kristen Holmes, CNN's Priscilla Alvarez, and NPR's Aisha Roscoe. She is also the author and editor of the new book, HBCU Made, A Celebration of Black College Experience. Tomorrow, that is available everywhere you can get your books. Thank you so much for coming. Okay, you're an Oklahoma girl. Mm -hmm. uh, and you're somebody who has been covering Donald Trump for 
ever. Uh, what are your, what's your sense of sort of the push and pull? Actually, you know what? I want to do something. Before you answer the question, I want our viewers to hear from his mouth what Donald Trump said this weekend about this. As the leader of our party, there is zero chance I will support this horrible open borders betrayal of America. A lot of the senators are trying to say respectfully they're blaming it on me. I said, that's okay. Please blame it on me, please, because they were getting ready to pass a very bad bill. And I'll tell you what, a bad bill is I'd rather have no bill than a bad bill. Go ahead. So I think we have to take a step back to what immigration means in a general election. This is an issue that Donald Trump not only is campaigning on now, but really started campaigning on in 2016 in the most aggressive way we have seen. Donald Trump wants to run his campaign on three big issues. One of them is immigration. The other is crime and the economy. There is a chance that the economy will look very different by next November than it looks right now in terms of getting better. Crime, we've seen statistics showing that it is going down. Immigration is a number one issue across the country that Donald Trump believes that his record and his rhetoric will help him in a general election. So when you hear him saying this, you have to remember that some of this is self-preservation. Mm -hmm. The better it gets on the border, the less he has to run on. And we know right now that this is an issue not just for Republicans, but for Democrats as well. Nationwide, independence. Yep. This is something Donald Trump wants to hold on to. And that's what is so critical for people to understand is that, yes, there are arguments, which we can talk about in a second, or questions about whether this bill will really uh, help this president or any future president crack down at the border. But when it comes to the raw politics, as I said at the beginning, it is so naked. And that is something that James Langford, Republican from Oklahoma, the person negotiating this, made pretty clear when he spoke this weekend. Republicans four months ago would not give funding for Ukraine, for Israel, and for our southern border because we demanded changes in policy. So we actually locked arms together and said, we're not going to give you money for this. We want a change in law. And now it's interesting, a few months later, when we're finally getting to the end, they're like, oh, just kidding. I actually don't want a change in law because it's a presidential election year. I also want to say, as those remarks show and what the former president is doing, it shows the obvious politics here. It's also forced President Biden mm -hmm. in, in a way that he has not done since he took office. I have attended many speeches, mm -hmm. but on Saturday at his, in South Carolina at a dinner, he ticked off border security in that speech and talked about Im the emerging border deal and said he would shut down the border and do it quickly. That was a notable moment. Up until this mm -hmm. point, he has not touched this issue in such a clear and decisive way in saying, I am willing to take a tougher stance on this, and the Republicans are the ones that are not letting me do it. And it gave us a preview of what we're likely to hear in the coming days and mm -hmm. weeks in trying to repackage the way that Democrats talk about border security and saying, we tried to go the, the hard way. We tried to be tougher on this issue, but you all didn't let us do it. Yeah. And seeing President Biden do that publicly in a way that I had only heard about happening behind the scenes mm -hmm is pretty remarkable. I totally agree. That was, it was a moment when he said, I'm going to shut down the border. Uh, and that is uh, a little bit risky for a Democratic president in an election year, because there are those who are on the left of his, of his party who will look at that and hear that and say, wait a minute, what? That's our Democratic president saying that? 
Well, and he already runs into this issue, right? Like he has a much more difficult line to kind of toe than Trump, who can just go all the way out because the Republican base is very united in how they feel about immigration. It's not really complicated. It's like they, they feel the same way. On the left, you have those who are very concerned about immigration policy. They want it to be humane. Mm -hmm. They want people to be treated with respect and dignity. And they feel like that's why we were voting for Biden. And part of his problem is going to be getting those people on the left who are concerned to come out yeah. and have the enthusiasm but, for them. But obviously, but obviously the, uh, the politics of this, as you were discussing, are so intense and so real across the board, even for some Democrats, certainly independents. I, I just want to play some of what Christy Noem, she's the governor of South Dakota, very much openly saying she'd be proud to be Donald Trump's running mate, went down to the border last week, and she actually used to serve in the House of Representatives. Uh, she's on the Trump train when it comes to opposing this emerging border deal. Let's listen to some of our exchange. The asylum process and, uh, and the detention process, I mean, it is, it is a mess. So why not at least fix that? Why not take mm -hmm. yes for an answer? I think that he would have the ability to fix that, a broken immigration policy, if the president could show that he was acting in good faith. Make an announcement that, that you're changing your policies, you're reallocating resources, and going to start protecting the United States of America, and you'd have Republicans uh, coming down to the White House asking to, that, to be partners on fixing our immigration policies. Kristen? Well, obviously, I mean, that's part of what is actually going on here is that they are saying meet us in the middle. And she's saying, OK, if you actually say that, we'll come to you in the middle. The other part of this is that she has to go along with, I mean, has to is a strong word, but she's going to go along with whatever Donald Trump is saying and try to spin this into that way. Because, as you said, she's openly said she wants to be vice president. We know that, that she has, you know, believes that that is a possibility that she could serve in a Trump administration. She has been one of his biggest supporters. I also think that, again, this is just going to show you how important the politics of immigration are going to be in 2024 general election. I mean, even Nikki Haley kind of seemed to dance backwards yeah. when she was talking about this, first saying we should pass it, then saying, oh, but if we pass it, it's not going to be good enough. Well, also, she's also seeing the same polling we're all seeing, which is that immigration is a top issue. We're out of time, but I know you wanted to make a point. I just yourself. want to say, put aside what's in the deal. There is one thing missing from that deal that just tells you everything about the Democratic Party right now. It's the legalization yep. of undocumented immigrants. Yep. That has always been in every bill. It's not in this one. That tells you everything about where they're headed. And I asked Nancy Pelosi that very question, and she said it was never part of this discussion, which, again, makes your point perfectly. Everybody stand by. Nikki Haley says she isn't going anywhere. She's taken her attacks on Donald Trump to a new le level. She's vacuuming you know, up money out, from uh, some of her party's biggest donors. Does she have any path, though, to beating Trump? That's next. I'm Ina Garten. Welcome to Be My Guest, the podcast. One of the best gifts you can give friends is spending time together. But what's even better than that? Cooking with them. On Be My Guest, the podcast, new friends and old stop by my barn for some conversation and great cooking. We talk about food, life, and everything in between. Listen to Be My Guest, the podcast with me, Ina Garten, and join us wherever you get your podcasts. South Carolina Republicans will go to the polls in 26 days, and with former President Donald Trump trying to wrap up the Republican nomination, Nikki Haley isn't going down without a fight. Trump 
Republican voters are going to defeat Nikki Haley's liberal Democrat donors every single time. Don't you think it's time he man up and explain why he spent rose our debt more than any other president? Nikki Haley supports a 23% national sales tax, and she wants to gut Medicare and Social Security. Donald Trump was totally unhinged. My panel is back with me. Aisha, I just want to show a headline in the New York Times that caught our attention, which really sums up where we are with the Republican battle. Haley's dilemma, how to diminish Trump without alienating Republican voters. I mean, you could say that this was her problem and every single person not named Trump yes. since the beginning of the contest. Yeah, I mean, I mean, that's the whole thing. Like when you you cannot win a race when you have to like run against them, but not be too mean because mm-hmm. people really love him. Well, if they really love him, why are they going to vote for you? And that's, 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 that's the problem. That, like, that's the fundamental problem. But obviously, she's able to raise money. People are still... I think that's really less about right now, because I think people know the writing's on the wall. Yeah. But I think it's about the future and people who want an alternative, maybe eventually, but it, not right now. You, you mentioned raising money. She is yeah. going to be out on the circuit in a very big way starting tomorrow in New York. Then she's going to Miami, uh, elsewhere in Florida, California, South Carolina, Texas, and the list goes on. Yeah, and she, she's going to outraise Donald Trump, particularly when it comes to big donors. The that's same crazy. Way that we, but that's really what we saw with Ron DeSantis, too. I mean, they've had an issue with getting the high-dollar donors. And now, if you ask anyone on the campaign, they'll tell you, we don't need that money. Yeah. We have money. Look at all of the small-dollar donors. That's and they do have a lot. And they do have a lot of money. Yeah. So that is true. And the Super PAC just came in three times what they got. The second half of the year was three times more than what they saw in the first half. So money's coming in, for sure. However... These high-dollar donors clearly don't want to go over. And I think what's really interesting is that Donald Trump's team thought that that big money would come to them after Iowa. Then they thought it would come after New Hampshire. Now they're hoping it's going to come after South Carolina. There is still an appetite, yeah. at least among those high-dollar donors, for an alternative. I-, I want to go back to that excellent point that you made about, you know, if somebody is a Republican primary voter and they like Donald Trump, they're probably going to vote for Donald Trump. And if they don't like him, they're probably going to vote for the other person. But it is still very tricky, even in the face of what happened late last week, which is Trump being awarded by a jury uh, $83 million, or, or excuse me, E. Jean Carroll being awarded that and that Trump has to pay it. Nikki Haley was asked by Kristen Welker uh, on NBC about that. Listen to how she responded. I don't know what all the court cases are. I haven't paid attention to what he's won, what he's lost. On the substance of the jury's ruling, should that be disqualifying to be president? I think the American people decide who should be disqualifying. Do you not trust the jury and their findings, Ambassador? I absolutely trust the jury, and I think that they made their decision based on the evidence. I just don't think that should take him off the ballot. I mean, that's as far as she has gone with Kristen's uh, great pressing. I interviewed her, I guess it was last week in New Hampshire, asked about this issue, and she did the same thing. I don't know the details of the case. If she's not going to go there on this until the very end when she said she trusted the jury, that's the question that maybe some people are asking. Maybe she'll get that question from her donors at all of these events. Well, that's really the tightrope that she's been walking. I mean, he, she recognizes there's cases, but she won't go so far as to say he's not eligible to run for president because of those cases. This is sort of the dance that all of them were doing um, before it came down 
to Nikki Haley and to Donald Trump. But the other thing that she said in that interview was that she was going to stick around through Super Tuesday. Um, and a lot of these uh, raising money, right, may get her there. But South Carolina is still going to tip the scales in terms of what that really looks like. But she's saying we're going to stick around, uh, but we're not going to weigh in on all of these cases. You know, I think that the, the thing of this is, is that once again, this is a very bad verdict for Trump. But for the base, they will look at it as overkill, a New York jury who doesn't like, you know, Donald Trump, those liberals. But the problem for the Republican Party will be in the general with women. This is a very serious. Mm -hmm. These are very serious findings against Trump. And I think that's where the problem's going to be. Such an interesting point. Okay, before we go, you brought a copy of this yes. book, HBC You Made. It's out tomorrow. I'll give this back to you all. Yes. <laughs> we, uh, thanks, guys. We heard from Carol herself this morning for the first time since the jury ordered Donald Trump to pay her more than $83 million in damages. She did a joint interview with her lawyer on CNN this morning. Carol described there the moment that she came face to face with Donald Trump in court. Preparing to see him was terrifying. Uh, the days leading up, as Robert uh, brought me around stronger and stronger, um, it was so, uh, I hadn't slept, I hadn't eaten, I couldn't think, I lost my language when she was trying to prepare me to go, uh, to do testimony in front of Donald Trump. And then when... We were in the courtroom, and Robbie went to the lectern. She said, good morning, Eugene. Please state your name and spell it for the jury, for the court. And there he was, and he was nothing. He was just no power. He had, he was zero. Did you? Did you make eye contact with him? Many times. And what was that like? I'm t it, he's an emperor without clothes. It's like looking at nothing. It was like nothing. In a moment of messaging jujitsu, Carol went on to say that Donald Trump's appearance in court was politically motivated and that Trump is, quote, using her to win voters. Now, Trump has not mentioned E. Jean Carroll publicly since Friday's ruling. Up next, I'll go to our top story of the day, and that is about what's going on in the Middle East. I'll speak to a spokesperson at the Pentagon about the scary powder keg overseas. President Biden is vowing to retaliate against those responsible for the deaths of three American soldiers at a U.S. outpost in Jordan. Officials say a militant group backed by Iran launched the drone that fired on the base. Iran denies any involvement. Joining me now is a spokeswoman for the Pentagon, Sabrina Singh. Thank you so much for being with me, Sabrina. So the president, as I mentioned, said the U.S. will retaliate this morning. Your colleague over at the NSC, John Kirby, said the president is working his way through response options. What options are on the table? 
Well, thanks, Dana, for having me. As you can understand, we're not going to telegraph our punches, but that's something that certainly the president, his national security team, including the secretary, are working through to figure out what makes the most sense in terms of response options. I just can't preview those today, but it's certainly something that, as you heard, the president is thinking through. And of course, something that his entire team is considering as we've seen, you know, multiple mm -hmm. attacks on our forces and unfortunately the most deadly one uh, yesterday. Can you rule out strikes inside of Iran? Look, I'm not, again, going to get ahead of the president. This is something that he is going to decide with his national security team. He is taking into uh, consideration many, many factors. Uh, and so I'll just leave it at that. Uh, Sabrina, Iran denies any role in this attack. The president said the attack was perpetrated by Iranian-backed groups operating in Syria and Iraq. Does the U.S. believe these groups took direction from Iran in addition to funding or is it possible they acted independent of Iran when it comes to the execution of the attack? Look, we know the pattern of these groups. We know what these groups are capable of. And we know that these groups are armed, equipped, trained, and supported, financially supported by Iran. And so these IRGC-backed militias are responsible for uh, multiple attacks on our forces, our U.S. military forces, both in Iraq and Syria. Um, and we know that Iran bears responsibility for this. And that's why you've seen the president, you've seen this administration hold these IRGC-backed groups accountable. Mm -hmm. As recently as December 25th, we took another strike against a, uh, what we believe is a militia leader that had been launching attacks at U.S. forces. And we won't hesitate to do it again. We just aren't going to forecast when that will be. Iran, uh, you hold Iran responsible for these groups, again, for funding the groups, or do you believe Iran actually directed this drone strike? Well, again, I'm not going to get into intelligence assessments, but we know that Iran bears responsibility. We know that Iran supports these groups financially, equipping them with capabilities, supporting them in their military training. Um, and so we know Iran bears a responsibility. But again, I'm not going to get ahead of the president on what he mm -hmm. decides to do and what action the U.S. military will decide to do. But just know that the people that are responsible for the attacks on U.S. forces yesterday and the death of three of our service members will be held accountable. This is by far the most direct, the most deadly uh, when it comes to what has happened in the Middle East to U.S. troops since October 7th. Looking at this and, and more broadly, have U.S. deterrence policies failed? I mean, how will the president's response be different this time? Well, look, what we saw last night uh, what we saw yesterday was uh, lethal action that impacted our service members. And that's something that uh, weighs heavily on this building, that weighs heavily on the secretary. Um, our thoughts and prayers are certainly with those service members and their families. Um, but when you look at the wider region, when you look at what's happening in the region, we know tensions are high, but the conflict that's happening between Israel and Gaza has been contained to Gaza. And we have seen multiple attacks um, on our service members in Iraq and Syria uh, that have been largely yeah. unsuccessful. Uh, minor injuries, minor damage to infrastructure. But unfortunately, yesterday we saw um, a lethal action. Sabrina, I just want to, uh, yes, the yeah. uh, conflict between Israel and Gaza is between Israel and Gaza right now. But that's not including what we're seeing happening across the border in the north with Hezbollah. Or that's not including what we've seen with the Houthis and, of course, what we're talking about now. So there is very much uh, concern or we have seen evidence of a broader um, escalation well beyond Israel and Gaza. What do you say to Americans who see that and are just downright scared? 
No one is disputing the fact that tensions are high in the region. No one is disputing the fact that we are continuing to see the Houthis threaten commercial shipping, our own military ships that are in that region in the Red Sea and the Gulf of Aden. We are seeing skirmishes between Hezbollah and the IDF. But again, the conflict does remain contained to Gaza. And that's what our, our priority is, to keep it contained to Gaza. We do not want a regional conflict. We do not seek a wider war. Um, and what we're seeing is proxy groups trying to take advantage of what's happening in Israel and trying to expand it out to our forces. And we don't want to see this widen out to a, a broader conflict, which is why you've seen the secretary surge assets to the region. Um, you saw two uh, carrier strike groups that were in the region just recently. We still have one in the CENTCOM uh, area of responsibility. Um, and the secretary, again, his main focus, his priority is, of course, the protection of U.S. forces. And when appropriate, we will respond. Sabrina, thank you so much for joining me. Sabrina Singh, uh, spokeswoman for the Pentagon. Thank you. And up next, it's Mr. Putin's message. That's how Nancy Pelosi is describing some calls for a ceasefire in Gaza, what she told me on State of the Union yesterday. In an interview on CNN's State of the Union, former House Speaker Nancy Pelosi told me that she wants the FBI to investigate whether some of the anti-war protests that interrupt President Biden's speeches are tied to Vladimir Putin and his campaign to sow chaos in America's political system. And what we have to do is try to stop the suffering in Gaza. This is women and children, people who don't have a place to go. So let's address that. But for them to call for a ceasefire is Mr. Putin's message. Mr. Putin's message. Make no mistake, this is directly connected to what he would like to see. Same thing with Ukraine. It's about Putin's message. I think some of these, some of these protesters are spontaneous and organic and sincere. Some, I think, are connected uh, to Russia. And I say that having looked at this for a long time now, as you, you know. You think some of these protests are Russian plants? I don't think they're plants. I think some financing should be investigated. And I want to ask the, the uh, uh, FBI to investigate that. My great panel of reporters is back here. Priscilla, you go to many of the president's events. I know you've talked some to some of these protesters. I do think in some of the reporting, people have missed the first thing that she said, which is that Many, maybe even most, are organic and people have strong passion. But she definitely is standing by her question about whether Russia is helping to stir this. And it's a new reality that the president faces in his events. But just last week, he met with some of those protesters when he got that coveted endorsement from the United Auto Workers Union. There were protesters in the crowd calling for a ceasefire. And afterwards, backstage, he met with some of those union members and heard their concerns. So he is acutely aware of this. He's talking to some of those who have concerns. But it is still does not make it any easier for him to navigate when he has these campaign speeches. Saturday being another example of that. Two people called out for a ceasefire. He kept his speech going. Sometimes he acknowledges them. But his campaign and his uh, administration knows it's going to happen. And they're preparing for it. You know, I, I mean, I think that what Nancy Pelosi said um, is going to get or has already gotten a lot of people riled up. And I think it, it, it runs the risk of and I, I don't know the veracity of it, but there is very real concern and there is a very real push for a ceasefire from some on the left. And so it makes it feel like that once again, the Democratic Party is not acknowledging the concerns of some of the younger people on the left and some of the passionate people on the left and that you have older 
some would say out of touch members of the party dismissing the passion of some of the younger members of the left. I mean, I think it happens over and over again. Final word. Yeah, I think that this, it seems as though you are downplaying real concerns that people have. And I know CNN.com has been doing all these voter series and they went to a Biden event, talked to a number of voters, talked to a number of Democratic leaning voters who said that this is their number one issue and that they didn't plan on voting for Joe Biden in the next election because of this. Well, I will be very interested to see if the FBI takes up her call and what they come up with if they do. Thanks, everybody. Appreciate it. Thank you for joining Inside Politics. CNN News Central starts after the break. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.